Next up on the program, author, attorney, and libertarian legal theorist Stefan Kinsella joins us to talk about intellectual property theory and why he believes the word property is a misleading way to look at ideas in a modern remix culture. Stay tuned. And support for WMNF comes from our members and the Capitol Theater in downtown Clearwater, presenting the Bronx Wanderers, who explore the Bronx of the 1950s, early 60s with doo-wop, rock and roll, Dion, the Beach Boys, Jay and the Americans, the Four Seasons, and more. The Bronx Wanderers perform January 16th through the 24th. More at thecap.com. And we're back with Stefan Kinsella intellectual property attorney and author of the book Against Intellectual Property. Welcome to the program, Stefan. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely, yes. Um, got my name right, which is impressive. I get called Stephen all the time, or Norman, my first name, which is fine, but uh, I don't care what you call me as long as you call me. So, uh, <laughs> But I'm, uh, I have, um, yeah, I'm, a, uh, I'm an attorney in Houston, and I've been involved in libertarian uh, theory and the libertarian movement and Austrian economics for quite a while, a couple of decades at least. Um, I'm affiliated with the, the Mises Institute and uh, uh, various journals. I founded Libertarian Papers, which is the, uh, the Libertarian Scholarly Journal, a couple of years ago. I'm the executive editor of that now. And uh, uh, I'm a patent attorney, and I've become in the last, say, 15, 20 years a uh, a pretty strident opponent of intellectual property law as one of the one of the top six or seven horrible things the state does to us. And I'm, um, you know, a close associate of Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, and uh, basically I'm an uh, Austrian anarchist, libertarian, uh, pro-technology, you know, new type. So fire away. That's a lot of adjectives there. Um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we libertarians love our adjectives. Yeah, one of the things that uh, I was noticing on uh, your website earlier was uh, you have dealt with intellectual property for quite some time as a patent lawyer, and uh, you have come up with this. You you wrote a book called, if I believe, against intellectual property. Is that right? That's right. And I was just wondering, you had a question specifically about the mm-hmm. idea of intellectual property as an anti-concept. Yes. Um. As many libertarians seem to think uh, intellectual property is an anti-concept, and of course, uh, for those of you who don't know, an anti-concept is a uh, sort of a, a faulty idea that detracts from a more important one, a more valid one. In this case, it would be, um, well, it would be con- contract rights, property rights. Uh, maybe you could go into that a little bit, uh, Stefan. Well, sure, yeah, I guess there's two ways to take it. You can look at the good side and the bad side, and I agree with you completely. I don't like the term intellectual property. This is this is the state's term. Um, it's it's a term that was invented to sort of sell the idea because people are generally pro-property pro rights. So if you can take these, really a more descriptive term, a more accurate term would be intellectual privilege or intellectual monopoly or basically just protectionism. You know, So the government, the state basically grants these these anti-competitive, anti-spreading uh, of idea type uh, rights, you know, which people can use to blackmail people, to extort them, uh, not blackmail, but extort, and to uh, to suppress free speech and to suppress their competition. And in the old days, this was called, they were called monopolies. In fact, the origin of this is in the Statute of Monopolies in England in the 1600s and the, Queen, the Statute of Anne in the 1700s. 
um, and the explicit purpose of these laws was to suppress competition, to suppress uh, an unbridled free market, and to prevent people from spreading the ideas that the the crown and the church didn't want spread. So it was, you know, the roots of these uh, protectionist measures are in protectionism, mercantilism, and censorship. I mean, explicitly, no one even denies this. Um, and most people, when, you know, the free market starts arising and people start seeing that, hey, we're kind of a liberal economy, we're cosmopolitans, we can do what we want, um, they start rebelling against these restrictions on what they can do by the state. And so the proponents of these measures relabel them and call them intellectual property, which is complete nonsense. They're not property rights. Right. Uh, So I would agree with you. The term is horrible. We have to use the status term to just have communication with them to tell them what we oppose, but I would prefer to call them intellectual privilege or something like that. Now, on the on the good side of the ledger, what we would be in favor of would be contract rights, property rights, freedom of association, freedom of commerce, you know, a free market economy. And whatever people want to arrange contractually in such a system, it's up to them, it's fine, but it would not be and could not be anything resembling the modern patent and copyright systems, which today go by the word, the term intellectual property. And one of the things I uh, I remember you saying is that you published your own journal, the Libertarian Papers. I noticed when I was looking this up that it was published under the Creative Commons license, and that's something that I myself, actually, as an author, I've I've used a couple of times because I I, I enjoy the remix culture. It's something that my generation is, is pretty much tied into, you know. We were born with data at our fingertips, and it became just a second nature for us to sort of take that yeah. and remix yeah. it and make it, make something new. And you yeah. know that we were kind of born in the era when Dr. Dre was saying that eight seconds is not stealing. You know, so right. we, we kind of grew up with like, well, if eight seconds isn't stealing, then you know how far can we take this? Uh, right. That's where you see, you know, YouTube is made up of an entire generation of people that have yeah. taken content and remade it, remixed it. And stuff like that. Yeah. You've seen as the contracts have, or as the the copyrights have expired on certain things that they've been, you know, mercilessly redone. And that hasn't hurt right. anybody. You know, Metro Goldwyn Mayer no. went out of business a long time before uh, you know, the Wizard of Oz expired. So, you know, like I, I'm interested in your take on the Creative Commons and just kind of the remix culture in general and how that relates to, you know, uh contracts being I, I, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, the rap music, this kind of phenomenon, remix culture, uh, is a natural and healthy thing that would naturally spread and has spread, but I think it's been stunted and distorted by the effect of copyright law. So, for example, um, you're talking about remixing things that finally come into the public domain, but the public domain now takes a, over 100 years because copyright lasts for the life of the author plus 70 years or longer in other cases. So... I mean, we're talking a big dark hole in the whole 20th century, you know, field of of artwork. Right. That won't be seen well until. Go ahead. Yeah, that won't be seen well until the 2100s for most people. Yeah, which is ridiculous. So people can't use this without fear of prosecution. Um, So what you have is you have this insane war by the content producers. They're trying to cling on to their monopolies, and over the over the century say, the last 100, 150 years, they've extended their monopoly. It used to be 14 years. Copyright used to be last 14 years uh, in the beginning of the country's, uh, let's say, in the early 1800s. 14 years extendable by another 14 if you applied for it. So 28 years at most. Now it's over 100. 
which is basically infinity for any normal human, right? I mean, in our lifetimes, everything we're familiar with will be locked up until our, our deaths, basically. Right, and probably our um, too. And so, so basically your choice is to either respect the law, which is an asinine law, or to risk going to jail. And, I mean, we just had one of our most brightest lights, our most creative geniuses, a sweet, gentle soul, Aaron Schwartz, who was facing 30, 40, 50 years in jail. Yeah. In prison, in, in freaking federal prison, for copying nonprofit academic files, and he committed suicide because of it. So basically, my view is anyone, including libertarians, who is in favor of any degree of copyright whatsoever, his blood is on their hands. And they should hang their heads in shame, and they should shut their mouths. They should not say another word pro-copyright until they get their you know, their views straight. I think it is disgusting and it is an abomination what happens to people there. You know, there's a student in the UK who's threatened with extradition to the UK. There's, uh, there's, um, there's Kim.com. There is, uh, there are people that have been put in federal prison for one, two, three, four or more years for uploading one copy of a movie to the internet. So we basically have fascism and complete tyranny going on in the cracks of society at the behest of the content industry and uh, being enforced by this, the jackbooted thugs of the, uh, of the fascist federal government. And right. any libertarian who says something like, well, some punishment of, uh, of Schwartz was, was uh, he needed to be punished to some degree, but the government went overboard. That's complete BS, in my opinion. The problem is not that the prosecutors went overboard at all. Prosecutors are enforcing the federal law of copyright. And that has a lot of you know, statutory punishments um, built into the code. Now, I don't, I don't have any sympathy for someone who's a federal prosecutor. They shouldn't, they shouldn't do that with their lives. But if you're going to be a prosecutor, you don't have a lot of discretion about what your job is, and that's enforcing these fascist, unlibertarian laws. Right. And one so of the things libertarians that... need to jump on the IP abolition bandwagon. We need to recognize copyright and patent is completely antithetical to private property rights, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and completely oppose it. Yeah, uh, which, which brings us to a nice segue, actually. Um, how do we go about uh, repealing these laws, uh, you know, making some progress, so to, so to speak? I mean, it's really, it's, it's really difficult because unlike, um, you know, we, we kind of have a, t- a twofold hurdle to face with IP. You take something like taxes or the drug war, which almost every libertarian, you know, except for maybe some anarchists who uh, who can't quite jump into the anarchist divide, um, almost every libertarian would recognize that taxation or putting someone in jail for smoking marijuana or cocaine, taking cocaine, or for not paying taxes, uh, they recognize that's immoral and that's wrong. Now, we're a minority, and so that's the first hurdle we have to overcome, is that we're a minority. But at least libertarians are unified on this very simple thing. The government has no right to do these things. The problem with intellectual property, which in my, in my view nowadays has risen to about the number six or seven worst thing the government does to us. If, if you want to list the top, wow. the, top, the top things the government does, that the state does, that ruins society and that harms people, it would be war, taxes government education or public education, uh, the drug war, maybe immigration controls, uh, and central banking, right, the Federal Reserve. 
and we're pretty much unified on that. Libertarians are unified in opposing all these things. But the next one, which is extremely insidious and dangerous, is intellectual property. The problem is it's called property, and libertarians are for property rights. And the ones that are bamboozled by the government's propaganda in relabeling this as a property right, they tend to say things like, well, we need to have some, uh, we need to have some copyright. We need to have some patent laws. Or Thomas Jefferson or the framers, the founders put that in the Constitution. They, they knew what they were doing, but it's going overboard. You know, prosecutors are going overboard, or the terms are too long. You know, they very so much basically, had, a, they very much had a remix culture back then, too. You know, it was very common for people to steal each other's wood plates, not like actually take the plates, but to take each other's drawings and reprint them in their magazines. And there was no, you know, that was just competition. That wasn't any sort of like, you know, send yeah. someone to their house and arrest them for it type deal. No, that's, that's of course right, and copyright was, uh, the scope was much restricted and the term was much restricted, so it only applied to a few types of things. But of course, as you can expect, when the government's in control of something, it's going to metastasize like a cancer, because that's what the state is, the state is a cancer on society. And um, so, of course, intellectual property metastasized. So I think our current system is the natural result of having IP at all, which is why I am, frankly, disgusted and fed up with libertarians who say, the patent system is broken, we need to fix it. The copyright system is broken, we need to fix it. We need to reform it. But we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You, you know, I say to hell with that. These people are part of the problem. The libertarians that say that we need to fix the problem instead of throw the baby out with the bathwater are part of the damn problem. Um, the problem is people have bought into the government propaganda and they have accepted a false theory of property rights, which basically allows an oligopolized industry of content creators and, uh, you know, uh, highly monopolized companies to control commerce, technology, and culture uh, with, with the government coming in as their enforcers. All right, um, moving on to something else. Uh, you are a legal theorist, so I was hoping uh, maybe you could give us a, I, I hate to, you know, go into generalities, but maybe an introduction for our audience uh, into uh, how maybe stateless law would work? Stateless law? Yes. Well, I think we were talking about earlier, uh, the two of us were talking about, you know, polycentric law in general. This is something that I had myself had never heard of until a few weeks ago. And, that, you know, at the constant mention of my friend Chris here, I finally the other day Googled it, and I, I still don't think I understand it. Yeah, I think there's um, there's different ways to approach this. Uh, you can do what what Michael Cloud, this libertarian in the '70s, called libertarian macho clash, and you can just say, you know, to hell with the state, down with the state. And but like you say, a lot of people are going to be befuddled by that. They're going to say, well, I don't understand how this is going to be provided, or this is going to be provided. Um, so one approach is to think about small things first as a way to kind of ease the the way into it. Um, there was a study recently um, in some little town in England where, I don't know, there's tens, not in England, but in England as a whole, or Great Britain as a whole, or UK as a whole, there are, I don't know, 48,000 traffic lights or something. And so someone said, why don't we get rid of the traffic lights in this little town and just do an experiment? And they interviewed people ahead of time, and they said, what do you think is going to happen? And they said, it's going to be chaos. Anarchy, right. Well... The energy, right? And so they removed the, the, the traffic lights, and, and actually traffic worked better because you didn't have cars just sitting there piled up at one thing, stopping for nothing, you know, spewing exhaust into the atmosphere, waiting for no other traffic to pass. It was just sort of an organic, natural, what Hayek might call spontaneous 
way of getting along. Now, this not, might not work in every area, but the point is people get so uh, used to the way things are, they assume that if you change it, you're going to have chaos, uh, which they equate with anarchy. Now, anarchists, like me, we don't equate anarchy with chaos. We, right. we equate anarchy with, with, with order. We equate the state with chaos. It's a controlled chaos for someone's benefit, but it's still chaos. Um, so I would say that a stateless society, another way to look at it is this. Um, in any society like ours today, we have a relatively prosperous Western world society. We're doing pretty well. We have pretty much order. Um, the government and the state and the police are always necessarily a minority of the population, and they are today. They may be too big of a minority. Maybe they're 25%, and they should be 2%, but still it's a minority. And the minority can never physically dominate the majority. They do it only because people believe in certain things. But my point is most normal people that you talk to would admit that they would not steal from their neighbors even if they could get away with it. Right? In other words, most of social interaction is possible because of voluntary compliance, because of voluntary respect for other people's rights. So what that means is we know that it's possible for people to voluntarily respect each other's rights without some kind of compulsion or compliance or violent coercion forcing you to do that, because it's impossible to have everyone being forced. Because who are you, who are you going to be forced by, a state? Well, what's the state? The state is a hierarchy of people, too, and who's going to force them to act right? So hmm. ideas do guide people, values guide people, and we know that, by and large, private interactions are not the result of compulsion by the state. They're because of people's values. So the anarchist view is that we just need to expand this sphere and educate people as to the harm done by the coercive sphere of the state. Um, so the idea is basically everything you see that works in society without a government agent there forcing people to do it, we want to expand that model to all areas of life. Okay. And so essentially what you're saying is that something like a polycentric system is going to work because people are generally respectful of each other. It doesn't require that a state come in and say, be good to one another now, guys. They pretty much know that already. They're just sort of waiting for everyone else to get on the same page. Yeah, I think polycentric, um, so I have, a, a, I'm of two minds on the term polycentric. I think in a way polycentric is used by certain scholars as a, euphemism for anarchy. They don't want to admit they're anarchists because they know that it's harmful to their careers or it's kind of an abrasive word. Mm. So they say polycentric because it sounds more uh, non-threatening, but they really mean by it anarchy. And, and for example, Randy Barnett does this in his Structure of Liberty. Uh, I, I'm one of the types of people who believes in calling a spade a spade. If you're in favor of anarchy, you're in favor of anarchy. But on the other hand, there is a subtle distinction between poly polycentrism and anarchy Anarchy just means there is no institutionalized agent of compulsion that controls a given area, a state. Polycentrism sort of refers to a system where there are different layers of control in society. So I'd say before the 1600s, before the modern state arose, you had in a way a type of polycentrism. You had uh, the church, you had the, the state, which was more of a monarchistic type institution, not the modern bureaucratic thing we have now. You had uh, the, the mercantile of societies. You had different other uh, groupings that people were controlled by or had rules that they had to abide by. But they overlapped, and not none of them were complete, and they were always sort of competing with each other. 
So in a way, this was a good thing. So you could sort of find freedom in the cracks between these things. It was messy. It was complicated. It wasn't perfect. But polycentrism, in a way, complements the modern idea of um, separation of powers, both vertically and horizontally. Now, horizontally, we're all used to this in the U.S. constitutional system, right? We have executive, legislative, and uh, judicial horizontally. But in the U.S. system, the American system, we have vertical separation of powers, which we call federalism, right? Which is states have certain rights and the federal government has certain rights. Right. Which is essentially so, uh, go ahead. The, the appeal to me, that you can uh, appeal to, um, you know, arbitration uh, in a horizontal manner. Um, is, do you want to add something to that, maybe? Um, uh, and, anyway, you can, uh, move, moving you can, you can on. You appeal uh, to arbitration in a horizontal manner? Say again? Um, well, what I meant before is that it sort of had, uh, you know, competing institutions where you could um, maybe appeal to them in a horizontal manner, as you were saying. And that, that in a way, is what yeah. appeals appeals to me because it's not that hierarchical, top-down sort of approach which, you know, uh, mo in a more easy way leads to tyranny and overstep and that sort of thing. Essentially asking other people to come down and take care of your problems for you. Well, yeah. we, we, I'll tell you a recent example that caught my eye, which was uh, uh, who's the founder, Schmidt, the, the CEO of Google, went mm -hmm. to North Korea recently and, and told them they need to open up their Internet. Mm -hmm. Now, from what I've read, all the state, you know, the secretaries of state of the U.S. and all these big government actors, they're totally appalled by this because you have some private company daring to enter into the field of international relations, right? But I think this is great. I would much rather have Eric Schmidt of Google I agree. negotiate with North Korea than the United States government with his nukes. Yeah, well, because, you know, he's going to go in there with a completely different approach. He's going to say, look, guys, I can do a lot for you. You can do a lot for me. You know, we can actually work yeah. something out here. And, you know, basically the American government is saying, look, you're going to do exactly what we tell you or it's going to be bad. You know, we're not going to yeah. say how bad it's going to be, but you can use your imagination. We have nukes and you don't. Yeah, it's coercive instead of win-win, instead of cooperative. Right. Now, it's one of the things I like about Google is they're very uh, – when they go into a place, they don't go into a place saying, look, this is how it's going to be. We're Google. You can do it our way or the highway. They usually go in there and say, look, this is going to benefit you greatly. You know, you just have to – that's how they acquired YouTube. They said, you know, you can back with us. We're going to turn your search into the greatest thing ever, and YouTube skyrocketed since they acquired them. Yeah, but it's not just because it's, it's Google. It's because it's private, and that's all the options they have. The only option oh, yeah. they have is, is some kind of cooperative, voluntary – mutually beneficial arrangement. Yeah, but they're they're a good example. You know what? Like you said, it's private. You know, it's the fact that they can't go in there and say, look, you're going to do it our way or we're going to cut off all your internet and you're never going to see the light of day again. You know, they, they go in there and they say, look, you know, we both have something that works for each other. And that's how banks work. That's how, you know, it's pretty much how every industry works ultimately is that you have something to offer. They have something you need. And, you know, the, a contract is worked out. Yeah, and imagine the, the typical North Korean citizen. Who who are they going to resonate with and be more moved by? The you know the, the head of a private company that's giving something great for free to lots of millions, hundreds of millions of people, billions of people around the world, or George Bush or Barack Obama, the allegedly imperialist you know head of a fascist state. That I mean, I'm just saying how they're being characterized. I mean, yeah, very true. Another another strongman, right? Another strongman or thug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, you know, Stephen, uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen, sorry. <laughs> um, I, I really like your perspective on these things. And one thing is uh, I want to bring you back sometime. We're going to be doing a, a show on Creative Commons sometime. I'd like to get some of your ideas towards that. Uh, it's one of the things that kind of influenced me towards a libertarian philosophy was the copyleft ideas. You know, like you said, the intellectual property mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. intellectual mm -hmm. privilege. I don't want to put a stamp on something and say, look, no one can ever use this until 70 years after I've died. I, I really want to say, look, if you want to use this, if you can use this, if you can make it better, please do. That's not going to hurt me right. in any way. It's only going to help. Right. Yeah. No, I'd be happy to talk to you about this sometime. I'm, I'm totally in favor of Creative Commons, and uh, I, agree with you. I agree with your, uh, your attitude here. Well, fantastic, Stefan. I'm really glad. To, uh, thank you for coming on. I'm glad you came out today. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll get a hold of you sometime in the future. Thanks a lot, guys. Enjoyed it. Yeah, you too. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks. And that's